Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 21st of January 2024, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Outsiders Come to God, Uriah the Hittite. So it has to be one of the major scandals of our times. Hundreds of innocent and indeed hard-working and conscientious postmasters and postmistresses receiving the most appalling treatment from those in positions of power. And whether it is the wealth of Fujitsu, the dishonesty and corruption of post office executives, or the complacency of ministers, the post office scandal is one of the most terrible examples we've seen of those without power being treated incredibly badly by those with way too much. And more than once, as we've heard about this in the news, and it really has dominated in the last few weeks, hasn't it? More than once, we've heard the fight back by people like Alan Bates and people like Joe Hamilton. We've heard that fight back described as a David and Goliath scenario. And that's a fairly obvious reference to the story about David that we probably all know, the most famous story involving David when he was a young shepherd boy armed only with a sling, defeating the Philistine giant Goliath. It's a stirring and popular story because it's about the victory of a small person in the face of seemingly overwhelming power. And yet, arguably, there's another story involving King David that suits that situation even better. And it's the story that was read to us earlier by John the story of David years later, now that he is king and he has enormous power, disposing of someone powerless in the most ruthless manner imaginable. We've heard the story, a number of us probably know elements of it already, but here's a recap. King David one day sees a woman bathing from his palace roof. He has her brought to him. And despite being told that she is the wife of one of his soldiers, Uriah the Hittite, David has sex with her. Later on, Bathsheba discovers that she is pregnant and she sends word to the king. And David's response is to summon Uriah from the front line where he's been fighting with David's army and encourage him to go back to his home. David's fairly obviously hoping that the child that's on the way can be passed off as Uriah's rather than his. Because of Uriah's integrity, because of his commitment to his fellow soldiers, this is all what we heard in the account, that plan that David had didn't work. So David comes up with another plan. He sends a message back to the army commander Joab. This message is carried by Uriah himself, and it basically tells Joab to make sure that Uriah is killed. And that is precisely what happens in the ensuing battle. It is a frankly terrible story, isn't it? It's an appalling story of injustice, corruption, and the abuse of power. And there are two things that make it particularly dreadful. The first, and most obvious, is that King David wasn't just a king anointed by God. That would have been bad enough. He's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, isn't he? The very reason why David succeeded Saul as king 
was because of Saul, his predecessor's disobedience to God. David is the great hero of the Old Testament. He's the man associated with 73 of those 150 psalms that we looked at not long ago. And yet he does this terrible thing. That's one thing that makes this particularly dreadful. But there's another that makes it just as bad, perhaps even more so. Uriah the Hittite, as that title suggests, was an outsider who had come to God. When Israel conquered the Promised Land, there were seven tribes living there already, and here they are. There were the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgishgashites, and the Hittites. Now Rahab, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, was a Canaanite who was incorporated by her faith into God's people. And Israel's whole calling was to be a kingdom of priests. Here is the commission that God gives the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. You'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, your whole job, Israel, is to shine for God in such a way that the pagans that surround you know that God is real and they're drawn towards him. And this is how Isaiah later put it. This comes much later but it's basically clarifying what God's call to Israel always was. I'll make you a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And Uriah's very name means something very significant. Uriah's name means the Lord is my light. And everything that we hear about Uriah in the story emphasizes that he's really devout. Every single detail we hear about him shows that he's servant-hearted. Quite literally, he sleeps with the king's servants. He wants to serve God. He's devout. It emphasizes his obedience to God. Uriah, in other words, is just the sort of person that Israel and her king was meant to be encouraging. He was a sort of classic example of someone from outside God's people who was being welcomed into it and should have been encouraged in his devoutness to God and his walk with God and so on. But instead, Uriah's rights and those of his wife Bathsheba were completely disregarded, weren't they? Bathsheba probably had little option about having sex with the king. It probably wasn't an option for her. And her husband Uriah, when he gets in the way, through no fault of his own, through no real knowledge of his own, he is callously disposed of. And the worst thing of all, really, is that Uriah's status appears to have been instrumental here. David, in other parts of the story about him, is scrupulous about not shedding Israelite blood. When he has the opportunity to king, kill King Saul when he's an outlaw, he won't do it. There are other uh, episodes as well where someone uh, insults David and David you know, decides, no, he mustn't kill that person, he mustn't shed his blood. But here, as elsewhere in the story of David, the blood of this Gentile, even one who was following God, is regarded by him as worthless. And sadly, it's a common perspective. And it does relate to this scandal that has shocked us. The post office scandal has shocked us most, I think, because of the indifference of those with power towards the supposed little people, the people who are too insignificant to really matter, the way they've been regarded as disposable. 
And in this story, it's not just David, although the emphasis is on him. His army commander, Joab, and probably plenty of others show indifference because the life of this gentle Gentile outsider simply didn't matter. But of course, Uriah's life mattered to God, didn't it? Deeply. God isn't mentioned throughout this story until the very end. Throughout this story, we don't really hear anything about God. It's like God is absent, and in a sense he is, because David's completely ignoring what God would have to say about this. But then we get to the very final verse of the chapter. Bathsheba has spent her time mourning her husband, probably genuinely. David has her brought back to the palace, and he makes her his wife. Quite significant language. Again, whether Bathsheba had much say in that, we're not quite sure. But we're suddenly told this verse right at the end of the chapter. God hasn't been mentioned throughout, as I say, with some significance, but then we hear these words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that is because every single human life matters to God, particularly those of the vulnerable and the outsiders. What happens in the following chapter, which we didn't have time to read, 2 Samuel chapter 12, is the prophet Nathan, he's a prophet, the prophet Nathan, not the youth worker Nathan, don't confuse them, although there is some overlap. The prophet Nathan visits David and he exposes his sin and David is repentant. And Psalm 51 is associated with that repentance, a very famous psalm of repentance. But the judgment is nonetheless still very severe. It's not that the judgment doesn't happen because David is repentant. The judgment still comes, and it comes in some force. Nathan tells David that the sword will never depart from your house. Nathan tells David that shame will come upon his household. And he's told that his son, the son that's on the way as a result of his adultery with Bathsheba or his abuse of Bathsheba, will die. Nathan says that because David has despised God, this will happen. But there's another reason that he gives as well, which is very significant. He says this, because what David had done had made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. And that bit's really significant. Israel and its king in particular were meant to reveal God to the nations to the nations surrounding them. By the way they live, they were meant to display what God was like and draw people further towards him. And this judgment comes upon David for many reasons, but one of the key reasons is because David, by his action, has done the complete opposite of that. And the enemies of the Lord, these pagan nations, they now have contempt. Whether they fully knew what had happened or whether it just spiritually sends out that message that Israel is not living in a distinctive way at all. David, through his actions, has done the precise opposite of that calling to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, displaying to the Gentiles God's light. That's why Uriah's name, the Lord is my light, is particularly ironic here. And it's such a betrayal of Israel's vocation, this action by David, that it basically starts the slide of the whole nation towards disaster. You see, David's reign is pretty much the high point for Israel in terms of political power and so on. But after that, it's downhill pretty much all the way. Israel sins more and more. 
and as a result, she's divided. Her kingdom is split into two. She's further oppressed by foreign nations. She's eventually carted off into exile. And by the New Testament period, although Israel's returned from geographical exile, it's still really pretty much in exile, pretty much in that fallen state. God had made great promises to David in 2 Samuel 7 about his son reigning forever, having a kingdom that would endure and so on. And yet what David had done in 2 Samuel chapter 11 to this innocent Gentile outsider seems to have completely wrecked all of God's plans. It now seems like a complete car crash in terms of God's plan to work through his promises to David, his promises to Israel. And it would have been a car crash. It would have been beyond remedy if it wasn't for Jesus. Jesus, as we all know from the Christmas stories, came from the line of David. Jesus, we know from the Christmas stories, came to be born in the town of David. He came to sit on David's throne. He came to be the son of David. And in the process, Jesus came to bear that curse that had come from David's actions. When St Paul, in his great letter to the Romans, mentions Jesus right at the start, he talks about Jesus being descended from David according to the flesh. Descended from David according to the flesh. Now, for Paul, people coming along on the Paul course have got used to this, flesh is always a negative word, speaking of humanity in its state of sin and corruption. There are other parts of the Bible, like the famous verse uh, in John, where it talks about the word becoming flesh, where the word flesh hasn't got that negative association, but in Paul it always has. And so Jesus being descended from David according to the flesh is really significant. Speaking, as I say, about humanity in its state of sin and corruption, and the way that Jesus lived was the complete opposite of that, wasn't it? Jesus lived in such a way to show the complete opposite of showing indifference to the little people. We've got a few pictures coming up here. We're familiar with these stories. We've heard them plenty of times. Jesus spent time with those people who were powerless, didn't he? He gave them a dignity and a love that came from nowhere else. He gave them an importance. And all of that led to Jesus dying on the cross. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't unrelated to all of that. It was its culmination. When Jesus died on the cross, it was precisely because he was descended from David according to the flesh. And when Jesus died, it enabled God's judgment to be executed upon all of that sin and evil that accumulated within Israel through David's treatment of Uriah and everything that had sprung from this. And the reason I say that with so much confidence is because of what then happened shortly after Jesus' resurrection. What was revealed to be the result of this when Jesus rose from the dead three days later? Well, we know that the curse upon the Davidic house and upon Israel have been removed because the Gentiles and everyone who had previously been considered outsiders could now flood in to God's people. The nations were no longer showing contempt because what had happened when Jesus died on the cross had dealt with that evil that had been passed down through David, through the Davidic line, had meant the sword would never depart from Israel's house and so on, had led to outsiders showing contempt. Suddenly God's love is displayed in such a way 
that that evil is broken through Jesus' death. The outsiders, the Gentiles, can finally be led to God. They can become part of his people through belonging to Jesus. That's what happens in the New Testament, isn't it? The big difference in the New Testament, although we get foreshadowed in the Old Testament with characters like Rahab, Uriah, and so on, it's a real problem, them becoming full members of God's family, but that happens in the New Testament. And the way Paul particularly puts it in his letter to the Galatians is like this. Paul says this, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in the Messiah Christ Jesus. You see, at last, Israel's vocation to be a light to the Gentiles, to be a light to people just like Uriah the Hittite, had been fulfilled. It had been fulfilled through Israel's Messiah, the son of David, who, like David's original son in that story, had died because of David's sin, but then, unlike that original son, had rose again with that sin having been dealt with and its curse removed. So what should we take from this story this morning? What should we take from its role within the wider narrative of the Bible? Well, it is a strong reminder that following Jesus is the very opposite of using power to oppress the powerless. One of the most shocking aspects of the post office scandal to many people was that Paula Venels, the CEO of the post office, really during the worst part of the saga, is an ordained minister in the Church of England. And she could have, apparently, become Bishop of London. She was shortlisted for that role. Now, we can be horrified by that, or we can learn a salutary lesson. It's probably appropriate that we do both. What it really shows is that any of us are probably capable of turning a blind eye to the rights of people without power, particularly when we become too focused on our own security and our own position. People often talk about people unwittingly wanting to protect institutions because of the good they do and therefore allowing terrible things to happen, but that, even that's a bit too generous. When people act in that way, they're protecting their vested interest in that institution. It's not really the good name of the post office, it is their vested interest in the good name of the post office in that example. And of course it happens in plenty of other institutions, including the Church of England. It's partly that, turning a blind eye to the rights of people through becoming too focused on our own security and position, the things that we want. But it's also forgetting in the process that God is on the side of the powerless and he calls us as his followers to be that as well. That is one of the foremost signs that we belong to Jesus. That story about the sheep and the goats and about whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. That is relevant here. We're going to have a sermon on that fairly soon. Now, David knew that truth. David knew the truth that God is on the side of the powerless. Why did he know it? Because he fought Goliath. That story from when he was a young boy. David fought against Goliath, and he knew that God was on the side of those without power against those with overwhelming power, but he'd forgotten that truth by the time he disposed of Uriah. It shows that people can forget fundamental truths as time goes on. Complacency can set in, 
we can lose sight of things that we once really knew were right. They can fade into the background and become less significant with terrible consequences. Recent events have shown how easy it is for all of us to forget this. Those people at the post office, I can't believe that earlier in their careers they would have looked on that situation in the same way. As time goes on, conscience can dim and people can lose their way in ethical terms. But what Jesus coming to put this right means is that followers of Jesus, those committed to living, joined to Jesus and with his spirit within them, will show the same attitude as him towards those without power. What we'll do if we're serious about following the Jesus who is on the side of the powerless is we'll prioritise showing such people God's love in an affirming, empowering, non-patronising manner because we'll get that this is displaying God's light to the world more clearly than anything else we can do. When we show God's love to people who are powerless, people who are unregarded by the outside world, we are never displaying that God is the light of the world more fully. And there are opportunities for us to do this pretty much every day of the week. We can do it in our work. We can do it in other parts of our life. We can invest and spend time in those who are powerless, those who are pretty much people who don't count in the sight of the world. That is the most effective way we can protest against travesties and abuses of power. We can call for heads to roll and there certainly has to be accountability, but the major way that we display that this will not do is by trying to live in the very opposite way, by trying as God's church to show that the little people, the people without power, really do count. As I say, there'll be opportunities for us to do that constantly. It may not seem strategic use of our time, but it will be. It will be precisely strategic use of our time because it will be fulfilling the calling that God has always made to his people to lead outsiders further towards him. To lead outsiders further towards him by displaying God's love. So let's take time to consider who these people might be. Who are the people with whom we're in regular contact who are the most powerless? What's our attitude towards them? What are our actions in regard to them? What things, large and small, could we be doing to give them a dignity and an experience of how much God values and loves them? Because when God's love comes to people who don't expect to receive it, the results can be truly amazing. Now that works all the way from the smallest children in this church, the reason they should receive a warm welcome the minute they come over into the building, and by the way we need more welcomers on the door, so if you want a welcome on the door do come and see me at the end of the service or see uh, Anna Larkin. We need welcomers, we need people with a beaming smile out there so that as soon as people come and see the church over the horizon they see someone welcome them. That's a crucial role in what, precisely what I'm talking about now. But all the way from our work with the smallest children in this church, up now in the groups, hopefully those children are all receiving, however they're behaving, <laughs> they're all receiving a message that God loves them to bits. Again, if you want to be involved in children's work, there is nothing more valuable 
or strategic to do with your time. But all the way to our widows group, half shares. Yesterday afternoon, we had uh, a tea party, as we do once a month, for the members of our widows group. Just last week, Nathan Larkin cooked a fantastic sort of, well, it was a Christmas dinner, really, but a January dinner for our widows. It's all trying to show God values you, God loves you. And most of these people who come are outsiders. Most of them come from outside church. It's very much what our mission as a church is trying to do. Our cinema clubs, again, the welcome is a crucial part, or it should be, and our lunch club, Grapevine, which I often refer to. We're seeking to do all of these things because we're followers of Jesus, but we can say more than that. We're seeking to show that we're followers of Jesus by showing God's love for those without power, those who could be seen as people who've been left behind, those people who could be seen as not really very important. It's hard work sometimes, and it doesn't always work out the way we'd hope. But it's at the heart of what God has called us to be. A people who are looking all the time to share God's love with those outside of his church. And draw them in. God does the work, but our role is to cooperate with that. So, let's remember this sorry tale of David and his treatment of Uriah and Bathsheba. Let's not just remember the story of David and Goliath, wonderful though it is. Let's remember and wince and be determined to learn from the story of David, Uriah and Bathsheba. Like the post office saga, it's a deeply unpleasant story, but it's a vital one. If that ITV drama hadn't been made about the post office saga, a lot of us wouldn't really have picked up on how important it is. Do watch it, it's still available if you haven't seen it. Both of them are deeply unpleasant stories in a sense. They're also examples of how easy it is for us to lose our way. And particularly for followers of God, the story of Uriah is a salutary warning of just how easy it is for us to lose our way in how God wants us to be living. To think that if certain things aren't noticed, they won't be picked up upon. David probably thinks no one will find out about this. He forgets that God is watching everything. So in a sense, it's an awful story, but it's a valuable one. And the value of the story is actually more positive because of Jesus. It's all part of God's mysterious plan for dealing with the sin of the world. The story of Uriah, I've become more and more convinced, is really, really significant in the unfolding plan of God throughout the Bible. It's significant when that genealogy uh, happens in the very first chapter of the Bible, Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 17. You get all these people that David's descended from. There are five women in that genealogy. One of them's Mary. The others are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. It doesn't even give her a name because it wants to draw attention to this episode in the family tree that resulted in Jesus. Hopefully this story can encourage us, warn us, to say faithful followers of the Jesus who came to remove the sin of David and enable everyone belonging to Jesus to be restored into people committed to sharing his love and seeing outsiders, people just like Uriah the Hittite, come to God. Let's pray for a moment. Let's think, perhaps if we can, of someone we know who is particularly powerless. 
someone perhaps who might not be very uh, attractive or necessarily behave particularly well, but someone that we see regularly that we know that God is calling us to display his love towards, to be a light in the darkness for. Father God, would you help us to always see people with the value that you place upon them? Would you help us to always be aware of our role, to be a light for you, to those outside or apparently outside of your people. And we know that the power comes from you, and so we ask that you would work your power through our faltering and fragile attempts to display your love. We pray, Lord, that you would do this through us. In Jesus' name, amen.